I'm so glad you're with us. It's going to be a, a celebration of Good Friday. But the real question is, was it either? That is, was it a celebration and was it good? We'll let the text speak to that issue as we go along this evening. Our, we're going to begin this evening in Mark chapter 14 and verse 18. If you turn there in your Bibles, Mark chapter 14 and verse 18, you'll find that on page 1013 if you're using one of our pew Bibles and you'll find that in front of you. We'd encourage you to use that if you don't have your Bible with you. We concluded our message from Palm Sunday in Mark 11, and I want to continue from that point moving forward. Like our last message, we'll be turning between multiple texts, so I'll ask you to keep your, nimble, your fingers nimble as we move through these various texts in Scripture. We'll be looking at Matthew 25 and Luke 22. And John 13, all as part of our discussion as we move through our understanding of this Passover Friday. Mark will be our anchor text, but we'll be looking at each of the other three as well. I want to encourage you also regarding a book I've mentioned before by Dr. Harris, The Darkness and the Glory, which focuses particularly on this section of Scripture. We had uh, run a little low in the bookstore. We have come up with a few more copies there. So, uh, and if you don't find one and are looking for it, let us know. We will get another for you. It is an exceptional piece. It's one of those books that I would very much love to have you pick up and read, and I'd love to interact with you to hear your perception of how it impacted your life as I believe that you can't possibly read it with the exposition that it brings of this critical point in our Lord's life without being affected. Well, in light of that book and in light of our text tonight, I've titled our message, The Darkness on the Road to Glory. The Darkness on the, Lo the Road to Glory. As you remember from last week, we were speaking about the road to glory. And on Palm Sunday message, we were looking at the three paths that the Lord continued to walk. That path of compassion, that path of commitment, and that path of compliance. And how there were unique aspects in each of those, but really they were rolled together. And they continued to manifest and express themselves throughout the Lord's life. A beautiful picture as we saw those swirled together and yet these high points where each of the individual components of compassion and commitment and compliance came forth. Some wonderful things for us to ponder. And that was my goal for you last week, that as you look through those, that you would be motivated to understand that as we walk through this week, we have such a unique time to understand each day that the Lord went through in the Passion Week and his specific steps, the triumphal entry, the cleansing of the temple, the teaching that he brought forward on Wednesday, the preparation for the Passover on Thursday, and of course, all of the events which we will recount tonight leading up to Good Friday. So to tonight, as we walk through these texts, we're going to see that scene in many ways is beyond description despite the beauty of the scripture and how it reveals it. The elements of darkness continue to build as we move along and it is indeed the darkness on the road to glory. But why a celebration? Why call such a dark and brutal night good? Well, let's find out as we look into our first point tonight, the budding of darkness, the budding of darkness. 
Darkness buds on the road to glory, not because of a lack of physical illumination. That is to say, not because of night or the light of day. In fact, it starts before dark. It began during the final celebration of the Passover. The Passover, as you recall, was to be celebrated between the two evenings on the end of the 14th of Nisan, as Exodus 12, 6 proclaims. And since the new day began in the Jewish world, at the end of the day, at, at twilight, there was yet still light that was ongoing. The Lord had sent the disciples to prepare the meal in Mark 14, 12 to 16. And that was an amazing set of circumstances where his miraculous prophecy showed them exactly when they would find this man carrying water, the large water jug that normally would be the work of a woman in that day and age. And yet here was a man doing that work. And as the disciples entered at just that time, there the man was inside the city gate. And so they led he led them to the place where they would prepare that Passover. The first formal indication of darkness is recorded for us in Luke 22:15, which reads in Luke 22:15, he said to them, "I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I say to you that I shall never again eat it until its fulfillment in the kingdom of God. As he proclaimed that to the disciples, they recognized that there was a finality, that there was something going on here. And what was this suffering to entail? The darkness began to bud with that Lord's proclamation of his suffering. Most interestingly here, as he spoke about that suffering, and in the same context, spoke about the Passover, those two Greek words, the, the verb for suffer and the word for Passover, are almost identical. The, the word for suffer is pronounced pasco in the Greek, and the word for Passover is pasca. They don't just share the same root, but there's a commonality that goes with these two. Passover was not simply a historic reference to God's deliverance of the children of Israel from Egypt, but it was a prophetic future look at the picture of Christ's sacrifice on the cross. And the sacrifice that was ordained thousands of years before this day, thousands of years indeed before the Passover, even before time itself. The Lord's next act, as recorded in John 13, is the washing of the disciples' feet. We're very familiar with that act. The beauty of the love of Christ to gird himself with the towel, having removed his outer garment, and to begin to wash the disciples' feet. And even here, the darkness was revealed as Simon's prideful response. Lord, do you wash my feet? And he goes on, Never shall you wash my feet. The Lord, of course, tells him, if, if I do not wash your feet, you have no part in me. And he says, then fine, wash all of me. And the Lord says, no, only it is your feet that need washed. His pride and his self-exaltation all are all over this scene, as we so often see with Peter. The budding of darkness builds even more as the Lord proclaims his coming betrayal in our text here in Mark 14, 18. Look at it with me, Mark chapter 14, beginning in verse 18. As they were reclining at the table and eating, Jesus said, Truly I say to you that one of you will betray me, one who is eating with me. 
they began to be grieved and to say to him one by one, Surely not I. And he said to them, It is one of the twelve, one who dips with me in the bowl. For the Son of Man is to go just as it is written of him, but woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been good for that man if he had not been born. As we consider the devastating details, the disciples have been walking along. They've heard of Jesus' suffering now. They have heard of him declaring to them that he is going to die. And now we hear not only death, not only suffering, but a betrayal. How can this possibly be? And yet, what is their response? They begin to be grieved. Grieved because of what they see in our Lord, doubtlessly so. But much more so, as verse 19 tells us, they began to be grieved and to say, surely not I. The introspection of understanding that it could be one of them that would betray the Lord. Beloved, this has got to be our, our heart attitude as well. When we consider where we are, we must also ask, surely not I. Could it be me that would betray the Lord? This is the proper attitude that one must have when we recognize where we are and the vast chasm that exists between God the Son and us as men. It's an incredible, vast chasm the introspection was wonderful here. And as we continue in this discussion, I'd ask you to turn with me to John's gospel. In John chapter 13 and verse 23. John 13 and 23, page 1077 if you're using a pew Bible. As we discussed on Palm Sunday, Mark's gospel is the most chronologically correct of all the gospels. And John's gospel, on the other hand, is the most extensive account of the Lord's Supper. Interesting to recollect exactly how those work out. Mark has 31 verses dealing with the Last Supper. Matthew, only 27, and Luke, the fewest, at 25. But John's gospel has nearly five chapters, 136 verses, this is why we call Matthew, Mark, and Luke the synoptic gospels. Because they all reflect the same synopsis of the Lord's life. But John, although a gospel, although reflecting the Lord's life, it has a much broader picture. And it gives us this vast additional material on this event of the Last Supper and the night in the upper room. We know also from the first miracle, which only John records, where the Lord turned water to wine. So his gospel is unique in that regard. The other three, again, being referenced as the synoptics. John 13 and verse 23 describes the betrayer for us. And here the budding of darkness is at a peak. Look at John 13 and verse 26 with me. Jesus then answered, That is the one for whom I shall dip the morsel and give it to him. So when he had dipped the morsel, he took it and gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. After the morsel, Satan then entered into him. Therefore Jesus said to him, What you do, do quickly. The darkness of Satan entering one of the apostles 
We need not wonder whether Judas was ever a believer, whether the Holy Spirit had ever entered him. The Holy Spirit will never dwell in an individual which can be possessed by a demon because the Holy Spirit fills us and there is no opportunity for there to be wickedness of an indwelling nature to come in to one who has the Holy Spirit, who is a believer. But clearly Judas did not. Luke's account adds further to the budding of darkness. The disciples next argue over who is the greatest. After all that has gone on, after seeing the Lord wash their feet, understanding his proclamation of his suffering, this for the third time they pridefully argue about their own greatness. Well, the darkness continues to grow with the prediction of Peter's denial in John 13 and verse 31. The entire discourse here begins at verse 31 and moves forward. Look at at that with me, John 13 and 31. Therefore, when he had gone out, Jesus said, Now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and will glorify him immediately. Little children, I am with you a little while longer. You will seek me, and as I said to the Jews, now I also say to you, where I'm going, you cannot come. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, even as I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this, all men will know that you are my disciples, if you love one another. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, where are you going? Jesus answered, where I go, you cannot follow me now, but you will follow later. Peter said to him, Lord, why can I not follow you right now? I will lay down my life for you. Jesus answered, will you lay down your life for me? Truly, truly, I say to you, a rooster will not crow until you deny me three times. The glory begins in the scene as as the Lord speaks about how he will be glorified and how God then will be glorified because of what is done to him. And so we see the, the road to glory clearly marked out for us, and yet the darkness still exists. The Lord speaking that no longer will he be with them, that they will now have to find their own way, that he is going to depart, but he gives them this new commandment to love. It is that love that we are going to see that he is continuing to express and show to them so that they know how that is to look. And again, Peter's brashness in verses 36 and 37. Luke carries the, the, store, the story forward in Luke 22. You can turn there or just listen. Luke 22 and verse 31. In that text, as Luke proclaims the follow-up to this, verse 31, to the Lord's comments to Simon, Luke 22 and 31, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan has demanded permission to sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And you, when once you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. But he said to him, Lord, with you I am ready to go both to prison and to death. And he said, I say to you, Peter, the rooster will not crow today until you have denied three times that you know me. How great must the darkness have been in the Lord's heart as he understood that this, the leader 
of the disciples was the one who would deny him. And not once, but three times. This amidst the one who was the betrayer, Judas. John 14 carries on all the way to John 18 and speaks to us more about the discourse in the upper room. And as the budding of darkness reveals the power of darkness at work, those same forces that we see in these texts, the forces of the world, the Jews which were contrary to him, the forces of their own flesh, evidenced here by Judas and by Peter, and even the devil clearly at work, very much as they are today. But something else was budding that night, and it was the love of Christ. Think about that love. Think about all of the darkness of the disciples, yet Jesus loved them still and pressed on, recognizing how far short they would fall. But he continued to instruct. He continued to guide. He continued to trust in his father's plan for all these things. His love pressed on. This on the last night. And these his men totally not getting it. But Jesus' love was undaunted. Beloved, we too can recognize that Jesus' love is undaunted in our lives as we fall short, as we blow it. He is ever there for us to lift us up and to draw us to himself. John 1.5 is such an apt summary of this dichotomy in the budding of darkness. John 1.5 says, The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. The light of the Lord was all around. His proclamation was everywhere. His stating and fulfilling of prophecy. And yet they did not understand. John chapter 13 and verse 30 concludes our first point. John 13 and verse 30 reads, So after receiving the morsel, that is Judas Iscariot, he went out immediately and it was night. And now the darkness has become physical. Let's continue to our second point, the blooming of darkness. And turn back with me, if you would, to Mark's gospel. Again, our anchor text, Mark chapter 14, verse 32, page 1013 there in your pew Bibles. Our scene transitions from the upper room to the garden of Gethsemane. And as the physical light of day gave way to night, so also did the spiritual darkness increase with the events of that faithful night. The blooming of darkness continues with the Lord's second prediction of Peter's denial in Mark 14, 26 to 31 as the disciples move towards the garden. Jesus again proclaims his immediately coming death and the falling away of all the disciples. But Peter denies the truth of the Lord. This his pride again evidenced for the second time. And from here the blooming ranks, ramps up significantly as they enter Gethsemane. Look at the text with me in Mark 14 and verse 32. They came to a place named Gethsemane. And he said to his disciples, sit here until I have prayed. And he took with him Peter and James and John and began to be very distressed and troubled. And he said to them, my soul is deeply grieved to the point of death. Remain here and keep watch with me. 
the Lord has entered Gethsemane, the place where he often would go to pray, and now he has taken his inner circle with him onto the middle of the garden and asked them if they would sit and if they would pray, if they would lift him up as he goes forward into this time of pleading with his father. We see the incredible anguish that's going on in the Lord's life as it says in verse 33 that he began to be very distressed and troubled. These were not minor afflictions. He was seriously burdened by all that was going on and all that was yet to come. And he proclaims that in being deeply grieved in verse 34 to the point of death. And again pleaded that they would sit and that they would pray and that they would watch. At this point I want to read you a couple verses from Luke 22 that add to this. Luke 22 and 43. Now as the angel from heaven appeared to him strengthening him. And being in agony he was praying very fervently. And his sweat became like drops of blood falling down upon the ground. His anguish was so intense that like the wilderness and his 40-day temptation, the Father had sent an angel to help him. And the anguish continued and was so intense that he was sweating these drops of blood, the stress in his body, forcing the blood out of his capillaries and through his skin, and he was literally sweating blood. Look on with me in Mark 14 in verse 35. And he went a little beyond them and he fell to the ground and began to pray that if it were possible, the hour might pass by him. And he was saying, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. And he came and found them sleeping and said to Peter, Simon, are you asleep? Could you not keep watch for one hour? Keep watching and praying that you may not come into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Again, he went away and prayed, saying the same words. And again, he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were very heavy, and they did not know what to answer him. And he came the third time and said to them, Are you still sleeping and resting? It is enough. The hour has come. Behold, the Son of Man is being betrayed into the hands of sinners. Get up, let us be going. Behold, the one who betrays me is at hand. Three times the Lord has gone and prayed the same prayer to the Father. In intense agony beyond anything that we can consider. Imagine the scene as he came back to the disciples and there they were sleeping and they awake to see their savior with drops of blood trickling from him from the intense agony which he was in. This was the beginning of the greatest of the darkness for this was the beginning of the father's separation from the son. Never had the son prayed to the father before and he was not heard. But now the separation had begun. Turn with me to John 18 as we consider the arrest. John chapter 18, page 102. John 18 and verse 3. Each of the Gospels has these unique details of the, count, of the accounts. And this helps us see the magnitude of the events of that time. Look at verse 3 of John 18 with me. Judas then having received the Roman cohort and 
officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees came there with lanterns and torches and weapons. So Jesus, knowing all things that were coming upon him, went forth to them, went forth and said to them, whom do you seek? And they answered him, Jesus the Nazarene. He said to them, I am he. And Judas also was betraying him, was standing with them. So when he said, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. The the power of his proclamation dropped the entire crowd. His glory so magnificent that as he professed, ego emi, I am, the same phrase that is brought before Moses in Exodus 3, that power leveled the entire cohort and all that were with him. I want to read you at this point a medley from the other three gospels that add some great insight here. First, beginning in Mark 14, 44. Now he who was betraying him had given them a signal saying, whomever I kiss, he is the one. Seize him and lead him away under guard. Then Luke twenty two forty seven continues our medley. While he was still speaking, behold, a crowd came. And the one called Judas, one of the twelve, was preceding them. And he approached Jesus to kiss him. But Jesus said to him, Judas, are you betraying the Son of Man with a kiss? And Matthew twenty six fifty adds, And Jesus said to him, Friend, do what you have come for. Then they came and laid hands on Jesus and seized him. How great is that darkness? As they had come and and as the very act of love and the expression of love, Paul telling us to greet one another with a holy kiss. And it was the kiss which was the kiss of betrayal. The blooming of darkness continues with the six trials. There were three Jewish and three Roman that went on. We'll continue in John's gospel to see the first illegal trial. Everything that they did that night reaped of illegality. It was against Jewish law for there to be a trial at night. It was against Jewish law for them to, to bring a trial about without adequate notice. And it went on and on and on. But yet they did it anyway. Look at verse 13 of John 18. And they led him to Annas first, for he was father-in-law of Caiaphas, who was high priest that year. Now Caiaphas was the one who had advised the Jews that it was expedient for one man to die on behalf of the people. A a, a bit of uh, Bible interpretation here. We often speak about the importance of the single meaning of Scripture, that each passage has one and one meaning only. If you were to trace this verse back to the text that it comes from, that it was originally indicated in, in John eleven fifty and 51, you would see a text where the scripture reveals that there is a double meaning. That that the high priest proclaimed that it was efficient for one man to die for the nation as he spoke about Jesus. But he had no idea that what he was saying was prophetic of not only the nation of Israel, but of all the nations. A beautiful picture of God's word bringing such light and glory to us. Continue on with me in verse 19 of John 18. The high priest then questioned Jesus about his disciples and about his teaching. 
Jesus answered him, I have spoken openly to the world. I have always taught in the synagogue and in the temple where all the Jews come together. And I spoke nothing in secret. Why do you question me? Question those who have heard what I spoke to them. They know what I said. When they had said this, one of the officers standing nearby struck Jesus saying, is that the way you answer the high priest? Jesus answered him, if I have spoken wrongly, testify of the wrong. But if rightly, why do you strike me? So Annas bound him and sent him to Caiaphas, the high priest. Here we find Jesus' simple defense for what he had done. You have heard all that I have said. Nothing which I have brought forward has been done in secret. And for this he is struck. And that strike with the hand is not a light slap. It is not uh, a British glove to the face. But it is a full hand swing and smack. And the first of many the Lord will receive. All of the three synoptic gospels describe the second trial. And, and we'll go back to Mark 14 and verse 53 for that. Turn back if you would with me please to Mark 14 and verse 53. Here in Mark's gospel, he gives us again a more full-orbed account of this situation of the second trial. Verse 53 of Mark 14, they led Jesus away to the high priest and all the chief priests and elders and scribes gathered together. Now we have the entire Sanhedrin. See, the first trial was also illegal because it was only a small group of the entire Sanhedrin, the ruling body that had gathered. It happened too quickly. They couldn't get them together. Well, now they've had time. Although yet still at night, although still illegal, they have brought all of the Sanhedrin as well as all of the officers of the court. So there is quite a group that have now amassed. As we think uh, of that group that has assembled and the false witnesses then that are later described that were all there trying to get Jesus to say something that would convict him of blasphemy for they needed something that they could bring the death sentence against him for. Verse 55 even says that the whole council was there. The group had assembled false witnesses and yet even they could not come up with a proper defense. Verse 55 to 59 confirmed the shameful series of false accusations. Pick it up at verse 60 with me. The high priest stood up and came forward and questioned Jesus saying, Do you not answer? What is it that these men are testifying against you? But he kept silent and did not answer. Again the high priest was questioning him and saying to him, Are you the Christ, the son of the blessed one? And Jesus said, I am, and you shall see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. Tearing his clothes, the high priest said, what further need do we have of witnesses? You have heard the blasphemy, how does it seem to you? And they all condemned him to be deserving of death. Some began to spit at him and to blindfold him and to beat him with their fists and to say to him, prophesy. And the officers received him with slaps in the face. Jesus is now receiving some of the most severe treatment and beating that he has yet endured. There would have been hundreds of men there that would have been beating him. It would have been inconceivable at what he had taken and blindfolded so that he could not even recoil. 
Luke 22 and verse 66 to 71 record the third Jewish phase of the trial. It was really, uh, it was just something that was done to try to show authentication of what the first two trials were. In the day they finally, the next morning, gathered the Sanhedrin to show justification for their illegal night trials. For the three Roman phases, we think of, of John's gospel. John is by far the more, most illustrative. John 18 is where we'll go for these. The first Roman phase is where we see him taken in before Caiaphas, or before Pilate. And it, as he is brought there, they are screaming that he should be crucified. As we consider that text in, in John 18, look at verse 28 with me. Then they led Jesus before Caiaphas into the praetorium, and it was early, so they themselves did not enter in. They did not want to be defiled. Pilate went out to them and said, What accusations do you bring against this man? And they answered and said to him, If this man were not an evildoer, we would not have delivered him to you. So Pilate said to them, take him yourself and judge him according to your law. And the Jews said to him, we are not permitted to put anyone to death to fulfill the word of Jesus which he spoke, signifying by what kind of death he was about to die. They go on and they argue over words. The second Roman trial moves him before Herod. And then we get to the third Roman phase, which is the most famous in all of the gospel records, which begins in John chapter 19. Pilate receives Jesus back from Herod and thinks that he can pull a fast one on the crowd by bringing Barabbas up. Everyone knew Barabbas was a wicked murderer. And Pilate thinks, if I can get the crowd behind me, surely they won't want Barabbas released. He was a scourge on society, killed many of these people's families. But it does not work. The crowd recoils at this. And the plan backfired. They wanted Barabbas and they wanted Jesus crucified. So Pilate had another scheme. He decided that maybe if he had Jesus scourged, that would satisfy them. Look at verse 1 of chapter 19. Pilate then took Jesus and scourged him. And the soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head and put a purple robe on him. And they began to come up to him and say, Hail, King of the Jews! And to give him slaps in the face. Pilate came out again and said to them, Behold, I am bringing him out to you so that you may know that I find no guilt in him. Jesus then came out wearing the crown of thorns, the purple robe, and Pilate said to them, Behold the man! So when the chief priests and the officers saw him, they cried out saying, crucify, crucify. Pilate said to them, take him yourself and crucify him for I find no guilt in him. He th thought that perhaps if, they, if he would beat Jesus badly, if they would scourge him and, and take him through a near execution phase beating, that this may allow the crowd to back off, but it did not. They yet desired his blood. Pilate takes him into the praetorium to question him. They have the discussion about authority. And then Pilate brings him back. And in Matthew 27, 24, Pilate saw that he was accomplishing nothing, but rather a riot was starting. He took water and washed his hands in front of the crowd saying, I am innocent of this man's blood. See to that yourselves. 
and then the maximum expression of the darkness and all the people said, his blood shall be on us and on our children. Not just taking themselves as responsible, but even their very children. Pilate releases Barabbas and again has Jesus scourged for the second time before delivering him to be crucified. And yet amidst all of this, there is still the incredible expression of God's love. As we think about Peter's denial and Judas's betrayal and the Jews' illegality and violence and the Roman brutality, still Jesus pressed on ahead in the plan. But like our first point, it is nothing but this incredible expression of love. It is Christ showing the disciples what love was to look like, even in the face of such horrific situations. 2 Corinthians 4, 6 summarizes where it says, For God who said light shall shine out of darkness is the one who has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. Jesus is showing them that what he is mustering, the love and the strength, is coming from the glory of God and that that is what they must evidence. The budding of darkness, the blessing of of darkness will then be our third point as we move to Golgotha. Luke 23 describes the Lord's journey to Golgotha, or as we call it, Calvary. Simon of Cyrene bears his cross, for he could no longer carry it because of the physical beatings which he had taken. There the Lord is crucified, and they tore his outer garments into four pieces and cast lots for his seamless inner tunic. Pilate wrote the inscription above his head, Behold, King, Jesus, King of the Jews. John notes that it's written in three languages, in Latin and Hebrew and Greek, so everyone would understand. The Jews didn't like it, and Pilate said, I have written what I have written. And we pick up in Matthew 27, Matthew giving us this final discussion of the Lord's trip to Golgotha. Matthew chapter 27 and verse 39. Excuse me, that is, uh, I want to go to, uh, yeah, Matthew 27, 39. And those passing by were hurling abuse at him, wagging their heads and saying, you who are going to destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself if you are the son of God. Come down from the cross in the same way, the chief priests also, along with the scribes and elders, were mocking him and saying, he saved others, he cannot save himself. He is the king of Israel? Let him now come down from the cross and we will believe in him. He trusts in God, let God rescue him now if he delights in him. For he said, I am the son of God. The robbers who had been crucified with him were also insulting him with the same words, now from the sixth hour, darkness fell upon the land until the ninth hour. About the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, that is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of those who were standing there, when they heard it, began saying, this man is calling for Elijah. Immediately one of them ran, and taking a sponge, he filled it with sour wine and put it on a reed and gave him a drink. But the rest of them said, let us see whether Elijah will come to save him. 
And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. The darkness comes to an absolute pinnacle as we see the Lord on the cross. Incredible for us to understand that the Pharisees who had memorized the law, who knew by heart the Psalms and the prophetic texts, spoke the very words from Psalm 22 that were prophesied of those who would proclaim the coming Messiah. The very words which they would never want to speak. And we see God is in control of the words of everyone, including his enemies. Luke and John add his last words. Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And John closes the account. It is finished. With a victorious cry, the Lord yielded up his spirit. No one would take his life from him. But how do we rightly call this a celebration and Good Friday? His adversary saw this as conquering him and their victory. Well, two reasons explain this as but a stop of darkness on the road to glory. First, because of his love. Think of the brutality of the crucifixion. The nails driven through his hands and his feet. Agonizingly striving to take breath. For it was by suffocation that death actually occurred. As the one had to lift himself up on the ropes. In order to get enough air into his lungs. To continue to breathe. And yet our Lord continued in that. Amidst the brutality of them hurling abuses. Of those around him. He exuded love. As they reviled him, he did not revile in return. And even the thief, and yet the one who was next to him that would cry out, he said, today you will be with me in paradise. What love is that? Love that was provided for his mother as he told John, behold your mother and mother, behold your son, so that she was cared for even as he being God allowed himself to undergo this treatment for at a moment he could have released himself. Because of his love, which is also manifest in his children, the scripture tells us that by this we will know love. As he loved us, we ought love one another. And John 2.8 speaks to this where it says, John, 1 John 2.8 On the other hand, I am writing a new commandment to you, which is true in him and in you, because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. Is this light shining in you, beloved? Is this love for your brother and fellow man evident in your life? But there's a second reason why this is the celebration of Good Friday. And it's in Matthew 27 51, where it reads, And behold, the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, and the earth shook, and the rocks were split. The tombs were opened, and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. And coming out of the tombs after his resurrection, they entered the holy city and appeared to many. Now the centurion and those who were with him, keeping guard over Jesus, when they saw the earthquake and the things that were happening, became very frightened and said, truly, this is the Son of God. As the veil was rent, we were granted access to the Holy of Holies. 
And no longer was there a separation between the father and his children. As the tombs were open, there was the confirmation of new life, which was first evidence in the centurion. And the question becomes for us today, has new life begun in this house? Has it begun in your heart? Have you recognized this love and do you understand that we must be those who are carrying that love forward when we go into our community, when we go to our neighborhoods, when we go to the store, when we drive down the street? Do we look at those we see, those our neighbors in Mobile? And do we have a love for them? Do we have a desire for them to know Christ? Would we put ourselves out there to ask them to come and to join us and to be a part of this? Because that is when new life has sprung up in you. When the power of the gospel and the love of Christ that he showed throughout the most horrific circumstances exudes from us in like manner. That is the power of the gospel. That is when darkness is overcome by the glory of Christ. And that is how we must assess ourselves in light of these circumstances and reflect upon them and understand that all of this was done to redeem us from sin, absolutely. But it was done to show us love so that we would love as our Savior loves. May that be what we receive and carry forward at this most vital time in our world's history and the greatest need for love which exists all around us where people are exalting themselves, arguing and bombing one another for every particular concern over every religious consideration and over every different ideology. May we be those who stand to say there is nothing but the love of Christ which will bring them to the truth of understanding our Savior and of spending eternity with him.